Because I want to talk tonight about something that is really precious to our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we sometimes think it's weird, but Jesus thinks it's wonderful. Uh, we sometimes cringe at it, but Jesus cherishes it. Uh, the world mocks it and marginalizes it, but Jesus said it's marvelous. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the church. God's precious, beloved church. Uh, we may cringe, but Jesus cherishes his church. He loves his church. Uh, when, when God's people gather together, uh, when God's people who have been washed by the blood of Jesus, when we gather together and we sing his praises and we adore him and we sit under his word and, and long to hear him speak and when we petition him and pray to him and when we encourage each other, God loves it. God loves his church. But let's be honest, it is a bit weird, isn't it? Remember the first time I walked into a church, age 21, and it was totally weird. They were singing all these songs that I had never heard before. They were praying these prayers with this Christian jargon. I didn't understand a word they were saying. And then this guy stood up to preach, and he preached for not 20 minutes or 25, but about half an hour. And I'm thinking, when's this guy going to shut up? And then it was all these people who were weird. I remember looking around this room thinking, who are these people? I would never normally hang out with this type of person. And that is church, full of weird people doing weird things, and God loves it. See, church is God's vehicle, God's chosen vehicle for, for evangelizing and for edification. It's through, through the church that, that we, we've been entrusted with the gospel to take to a needing world to evangelize. And it's through the church that, that we are edified, that we are built up in our faith. We need God's church. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you will know that, that leadership really matters. The church leadership really, really matters because leaders shape a culture. Uh, leaders shape the theology. Uh, leaders can either help people to grow closer to Jesus or further away from Jesus. And, and it's not just what they say or what they teach. It's the way that they live. It's their lives. And so the question for us tonight is, What's a good, healthy, godly church going to look like? I hope that in 150 years' time that you, you long for this building in Kirby to be packed with people worshipping Jesus and witnessing Jesus way after you have passed away. So what's a godly, good church led by good leaders going to look like? And that's why we need the book of Titus. These three little chapters are packed with wisdom on who should lead God's church, how we should relate to one another, how Jesus should be honored here at church. It is a letter or an epistle. That's the style of writing. It's, it's punchy. It's urgent. But we see from, from verse 1 that it's from Paul, Paul, a servant of God. 
He's the same man who used to be called Saul, but then met the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. Uh, it's, it's written about AD 63 in a place called Nicopolis. And it's written, look at verse 4, it's written to Titus. So this is not like Ephesians or Colossians or Philippians that are written to the whole church. It's written to a person, a pastor. Uh, that's why it's called a pastoral epistle, a letter to a pastor. To Titus, uh, he's an interesting guy, Titus. We, we don't really know much about Titus. He's not mentioned at all in the book of Acts. Yet we know he travelled extensively with Paul in his second and third missionary journeys. Uh, we know from Galatians chapter 2 that, that Titus was a, a Gentile. He was a Greek. He'd been uncircumcised. Uh, and we know from 2 Corinthians that he was a highly gifted leader. He's mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians. He's the guy who was entrusted with taking what's called the, the severe letter to the Corinthians. He's the guy who was entrusted with the, the fundraiser for poor and needy Christians in Jerusalem. He's courageous, he's bold, he's a leader. And he's been left on the island of Crete. You see that down in verse 5? The reason I left you in Crete. So Crete is this beautiful island in the Mediterranean Sea, just southeast of Greece. And we know that the gospel reached Crete fairly early on because there were Cretans, people from Crete, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And they heard the gospel in their own tongue, they took it back to Crete. And the church was formed in Crete. And then Paul went to Crete and planted churches. Then Paul left Crete and left Titus in Crete to do what? Verse 5, to appoint elders, to appoint leaders in every town. So that's, that's Titus' job, to appoint good leaders for God's church. Good leaders who will care for and feed and nourish the flock. Leaders who will urge people to lead godly lives, leaders who would teach the truth and correct error. So this is about good leadership in God's good church so that you have a people in the church who are eager to do good. Look at these few verses. 1 verse 8, one who loves what is good. 2 verse 7, set them example by doing what is good. 2 verse 14, eager to do what is good. 3 verse 1, ready to do whatever is good. 3 verse 8, be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. 3 verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. So what's the letter to Titus in an overview? It's about good leadership for God's good church so that we might be a people who do good. And that's why we're studying this letter in our year of goodness. So when I pray, and then Claudia will read the first four verses. Father, we long for this church here in Kirbilly to be a good church with good leadership and good people. And so we pray, speak to us now, Lord, through your word and by your spirit. Amen. So Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. <clears throat> 
to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If I asked you what kind of church do you want to be part of? If I asked you what kind of church do you want the Bridge Church to be, what, what, what kind of words would you use? I want to give us three words tonight from those little four verses that should shape this church and shape you. Here's our first word, grace. A grace-filled church. A, a church gripped by grace, people gripped by grace, leaders gripped by grace. A grace-filled church is such a beautiful church because, because there's no hierarchy. Everyone's treated equally regardless of your age or your stage or your gender or your sexuality or your intellect. We're just all equal in, in God's grace. A church bathing in grace is where there's no hint of pride or arrogance or self-importance because we're just all equal. I remember visiting a, a well-known church in, in London and uh, I was early as new people always are and I was at the bookstore because new people always hang out there and there was this old man with grey hair and he was vacuuming the carpet and he came over to speak to me. He was really lovely and really warm and really welcoming. And about half an hour later, he stood up in church and preached the sermon. And he was the pastor of the church, and you might have heard of him. His name was John Stott. And it really struck me that this, this, this pastor was vacuuming the carpet because nothing was beneath him. I thought, there's a man who's understood grace. Same as the Apostle Paul. Remember who Paul is? He is a brilliant scholar. Highly educated, Jewish leader, learned in Greek philosophy and literature, inherited Roman citizenship, a unique calling to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's a somebody, isn't he? But what does he call himself in verse 1? What's, what title does he give himself? He doesn't say, Paul, the, the right reverend doctor, honorable apostle, conference speaker extraordinaire, and church planter. He says, Paul, a servant of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of, the, of, of Jesus Christ. And the order there is really important. Yes, he's an apostle. Yes, he's seen the risen Lord Jesus. Yes, he's a sent one. But before he's a sent one, he's a surrendered one. Before he's sent out, he's surrendered his whole life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes the more humble title first, a servant uh, literally, the word there is, is slave or literally a bond slave, someone who is completely surrendered to, to the will of their master. Remember that true story of the slave girl who was in chains? She was hungry, emancipated. Her face was staring at hopelessness. And one day, this, this rich, wealthy, kind gentleman came walking past and saw her. His name was Abraham Lincoln. He took pity on her handed over this large sum of cash, and he redeemed her. And she's totally amazed. She said these words, Mr. Lincoln, what do you want me to do for you? I'll cook for you, I'll clean for you, I will work for you all my days. And Lincoln said this, you don't have to do anything. You are free to go and live as you please. Just live as a redeemed person. And that's the idea of this bond slave, that you just live with gratitude to a good master, you've got a new master and he is good. You've been bought at a price, but he's a good master and you want to serve him and live for him. 
This is a man who understood grace. And you know Paul's story. He was the persecutor. He was the murderer who met the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. He was redeemed. He was loved. He was transformed. Now what did Paul do? Nothing except kill people. What did Paul deserve? Nothing except punishment and judgment. Why did he get grace? Because he just did. Look at verse 1. To further the faith of God's elect. There it is, the, the doctrine of election, the chosen ones, uh, the ones that God chose before the beginning of time to be his precious redeemed people. Um, I know we don't like this doctrine, but it's actually really beautiful and comforting because God chose Paul and not the other way around. And God chose me, and I, I don't know why. I have no idea why God saw me and opened my eyes to the truth and loved me and redeemed me and chose me. Why me? I don't get that. But it keeps you level-headed. There's nothing utterly special about anybody here in this room tonight. We are not these extraordinary people who God needed for his church. It's all God's amazing grace. How did he experience it? Verse 4, through the person of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. That the person of Jesus Christ, he is the only Saviour, the only one who can save you from your sins. There is no other way but through the precious blood of Jesus. That is amazing grace. And it's totally free. Totally and utterly free. Imagine that you are in massive, massive debt, say a million dollars debt. And there's no way you can repay it. And one day this stranger comes up to you with his wad of cash, a million dollars, and says, here's a million dollars, just, just take it and use it to be debt-free. And so you take it, you reach out and you take it. And you pay off all your debts. And you get to live debt-free. Now, I hope you're not going to spend the rest of your days boasting and bragging about how amazing you are because you had the intellect to, to reach out and take the free gift. What did you do there? Nothing. 100% his gift, 0% you. And that's grace. And the only response to grace is humility, that right view of yourself. We are not super important. We're not better or worse than anybody else. You can have the best theology degrees. You can have the best high-flying job in a city. You can live in the best beautiful house in Mossman. You can send your kids to the most prestigious schools. You can be a somebody in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, we are all totally equal. That's why I love Paul. He's an apostle. He's a chosen one. He is a sent one, but there's not a hint of pride. It's not look at me. He's not lording it over people, driving around in fast cars and being inaccessible and making a name for himself. He's not a success story. He's just a servant. And look how he describes Titus in verse 4. To Titus, my, my true son, in our common faith. Not a superior faith, just a common faith because the grace that saved Titus also saved Paul. And my son in the faith, I love that. Not my little intern, not my little lackey, not my dog's body to do all the mundane work because I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm now too important because I'm the pastor of a church. No, he's a son, a precious son in the faith. 
In 2 Corinthians, he describes Titus as my brother in the faith. And that's what grace does. You've got two people. Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Jew of Jews, circumcised on the eighth day. And you've got Titus, who is a Gentile, a Greek, a businessman. They've got nothing in common except grace. And grace unites them as brothers, as family. Different ages, different stages, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, but we're one in grace. Remember that true story of the, the high court judge and the convicted criminal kneeling at the communion rail together in church? Two men, one a high court judge, one a convicted criminal, taking communion together. At the end of the service, the pastor said to the judge, did you see who was kneeling next to the communion rail? He said, oh, I did see. Yeah, I did see. And, the, and the, the pastor said, oh, yeah, what a walking miracle of grace. He said, yeah, yeah. And, and then, then the judge said, who are you talking about? And the pastor said, I'm, I'm talking about the convicted criminal. He's a walking miracle of grace because, like, he did so many bad things, but, but God has saved him, redeeming. What a walking miracle of grace. And the high court judge said, no, 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 I'm the walking miracle of grace. Because I was educated at the best school in England. I went to Oxford University. I, I studied law. I went to the bar. I've got the high-flying job. But God, in his mercy and grace, saw me and chose me. I'm a walking miracle of grace. And that's the attitude that every minute of every day you see yourself through that lens that you are just a walking miracle of grace. And it gets rid of your pride. It gets rid of your arrogance. You're just a somebody in God's eyes because of his grace. And I love the fact that the Titus isn't mentioned in the book of Acts. And that's okay. And it struck me that there's lots of amazing women and amazing men in the early church who we've never heard of. And they planted incredible churches and did amazing ministries. And we don't even know their names. And that's okay because it's not about them. It's all about Jesus. You get to meet them one day in heaven. And when you have that attitude, it's not about me it's all about Jesus and his grace. You stand before God entirely because of grace. You can serve because of grace. You'll be forgiven because of grace. And I long for our church here in Cuba to be gripped by grace, to be a grace-filled church. So please stop. Stop the rules. Stop the legalism. Stop the works where you feel good about yourself because you've done something. It doesn't count towards anything. And stop the the pride and feeling good about yourself and feeling superior because you've got a title or a position in this church. And please, if you're here and you're feeling inferior or you're feeling that you're not good enough and you feel worthless, get rid of that attitude because you are worth something to God. And stop measuring success by numbers and programs and making comparison with other churches. We're just a little church gripped by the grace of God. And at number two, it's about godliness. Gripped by grace and growing in godliness. Because our belief must always impact our behavior. And our creed must change our conduct. And the damage done by so-called Christians who claim to be marked by grace but live these horrible, godless lives, it is devastating. So from grace flows godliness. It was 1998 in Peru when the 
El Nino range came and that horrible story of, of this mudslide in this little village. You remember that story? And the mud came down the mountain and it wiped out this house and inside this house was this two-year-old child asleep and you've got these pictures of this, this woman, this mother, wandering the streets of Peru shouting, where's my baby? Where's my baby? Have you seen my baby? And about four hours later, this, this man walked down the street with this, this bundle caked in mud, black bundle, and handed it to this mother. And the mother just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed because the baby was alive. And she took this bundle, her child, and, and she just clung to her child. She didn't care about the, the muck and the mud. She didn't care that she was getting dirty. She was just so thankful that her child was alive. And then later on, she, she washed the child and cleansed the child of all the mud and the muck and then pleaded with that child to stop playing in the muck again. And that's how God sees us. He doesn't care about all your muck that you want to live in. He doesn't say, clean yourself up and come to me. He says, come to me in your muck and let me grab hold of you and cover you with grace. But once I've covered you in my grace, then please, please stop playing in the muck of this world. And that's what this book is about, living godly lives, doing good deeds, being different from the world, living a life which is honouring and upright and holy towards our good God. A godly church is beautiful, isn't it? A godly church where, where, where people always speak kindly and gently to each other. A godly church where we pursue purity, not, not, not just because we want to be blameless in God's sight, but in the eyes of the world as well. A godly church where we respect different ages and we treat those who are older than us with respect and those who are younger than us with absolute purity. A godly church where we are known for our good deeds and our kindness. Now please, Bridge Church, we do not want to be known just as a church with good teaching because lots of churches have good teaching, great teaching, faithful teaching, sound teaching. But as I read the scriptures, your teaching transforms your behavior. Truth leads to godliness. That's what verse 1 says, to further the, the faith of, of God's elect, to grow the faith, to grow our knowledge of God, our trust of God. Here it is, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That's the goal the goal is not a head stuffed with Bible knowledge. The goal is people living fruitful, obedient, God-honoring lives. The goal of this church is people who are going for godliness. It was Newton who says, I'm not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, but I can truly say I'm not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what we want to be known here as people who are growing in godliness. But it starts with truth. Spot that in verse 1. The knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. So truth is important. Truth is vital. Please don't, uh, don't undervalue truth. There are, there are way too many churches out there and they have great people and great programs and great social action. But the one thing they're lacking is truth. That's why Paul writes this letter to Help us to be discerning as to what we listen to and the teachers that we digest. Uh, 
Not some latest pop psychology, but, but God's truth, God's word. Not some hobby horse preacher, but God's word. This is true, says Paul. Look at the little phrase in verse 2, I love it. Uh, which God who does not lie. So there is something that God cannot do. God cannot lie. So what, what God says will happen will happen. What God promises will come to fruition. When God says he'll never leave us nor forsake us, that is true, whether you feel it or not. When God says that he is all-sufficient and his strength is made perfect in weakness, that is true, whether you like it or not. When God says he can do more than you ask or imagine, that is true, whether you experience that or not. So God's word is true. And your godliness flows from your knowledge of the truth. And maybe that's why some people here tonight are struggling with your godliness. Maybe you're just not soaking yourself in the word of God. Sadly, I hear way too many people for whom this half-hour sermon is the only time in the week they sit under God's word. And then you wonder why you're not growing in godliness. Learn to feed yourself. Learn to love truth. But I actually don't think that's the issue for most of us here. Most of us here have got our heads stuffed with truth, full of truth. You could pass a theology exam on truth. The issue is you're not allowing the Spirit of God to take that truth and transform you. You're not allowing the Spirit to take what you know about God to, to shape your behavior. And I do wonder whether it's because we have almost sanitized ungodliness. We spend so much time in the world that the behavior of the world just becomes normal to us. It's just normal to gossip and to slander and to put people down. It's just normal to puff yourself up and to be arrogant and proud. And we've, we've just normalized ungodliness. And so when we see Christians who are striving to, to grow in their godliness, we, we label them as radical Christians. They're not radical, they're the normal Christians. They love God's word, they love God, and so they're pursuing godliness. And the reason that we pursue godliness is it matters. Godly leadership really, really matters. If we've learned nothing over the past five years of the global church is that ungodliness in leadership is devastating. Mark Driscoll, Ravi Zacharias, Jonathan Fletcher, Bill Hybels, they're just the high-profile ones. If you pray anything for, for our pastoral team here, please pray for our godliness. Uh, not just talking about godliness, not just having a form of godliness, but, but actually pursuing godliness, going for our godliness. Please, please pray for that. Uh, and I hope you understand that your godliness, it flows from grace. I've been a Christian for about 18 months, uh, back in 1991. It's a long time ago, isn't it? And to be honest, I was tired. I was weary. I was burdened. And I used to wake up every morning, and I had all these, these post-it notes on my bedroom wall at university, and it was this, Paul, you can't do this. 
and you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you must do this, and you must do this, and you must do this. And it was utterly, utterly exhausting. Because that's legalism, that's rules. And a pastor sat me down and read Titus 2, verse 11 to me. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Praise God for that, the grace that saved. And I'd understood that. But verse 12, it, that is grace, the same grace that has saved me, grace teaches me to say no to ungodliness, to say no to anger and retaliation and bitterness and hatred and worldly ambitions. It's grace that teaches me that, not laws. And grace teaches me to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And that was a game changer for me. It was liberating for me because the more I marveled at God's grace, the more I bathed in God's grace, the more I was just amazed at Jesus, the more I, I wanted to live a godly life rather than had to live a godly life. And there's a massive difference. If you want to pursue godliness, then just bathe yourself in Jesus more. The more you love him, the more you want to be like him. And way too many churches start with grace and shift to works. And I think that's because the culture that we live in from a very early age teaches behavior change by rules and rewards. And the Bible says something completely different. You're saved by grace, you live by grace, you grow by grace. It's all about grace. To put it very simply, when you've been gripped by grace, you long to grow in godliness. Uh, Jerry Bridges wrote an amazing book called um, The Pursuit of Holiness. It's a great book. It sold three million copies. About five years afterwards, he realized that the book was actually fairly legalistic. And so he wrote another book called Transforming Grace, about how grace transforms your godliness. But that, and he sold 300,000 copies because Christians didn't like that. They liked legalism and the pursuit of holiness. Please be gripped by grace in your growing godliness. And my last word for this church tonight is this word gospel proclamation. So we're gripped by grace, we grow in godliness, and we are gossiping the gospel, we are proclaiming the good news, we are talking about Jesus. That's what Paul did, verse 1. He's a, an apostle, literally a sent one, a messenger, who's sent into the world to, to preach the good news about Jesus, the gospel. What is the gospel, verse 2? It is the hope, the certainty of eternal life, of life beyond this life, that begins the moment that you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. You live a life that's truly life. You're just waiting for all the mess to be cleansed once and for all when Jesus returns. That is the gospel, the hope of eternal life. Uh, verse 2, that was promised before the beginning of time. Do you spot that? That's incredible. It blows your mind that before time began, God's plan was always to send his son. Before time began, God's plan, God's promise that he would restore this broken world through the person of Jesus Christ. And the thing about God's promises is that you know it's going to happen, but it will happen in God's timing, not your timing. And again, I was thinking this week, if I was God, I think I would have sent Jesus about 2,000 years earlier. 
Maybe after the flood or maybe after Abraham or, you know, we could have avoided all that wandering in the wilderness stuff and all the rebellion stuff. We could have just had Jesus 4,000 years ago. That would have been nice, wouldn't it? But I'm not God. No, verse 3, at God's appointed season, his perfect timing, he sent his perfect son. And verse 3, he brought that gospel to light. The word there, he manifested it, he revealed it. It was hidden, it's now revealed. He brought it to light how? This is mind-blowing. Through the preaching, through the proclamation, entrusted, handed to Paul by the command of God our Saviour. You ever thought about this? God could have chosen a million one different ways to get the gospel into his world. But in some unfathomable wisdom, he chose Muppets like you and I to do that. Now, Paul was commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was set apart for that task. But, but friends, if you're a Christian here tonight, so have you been. If you believe in Jesus, you have been commissioned, you have been called. Not by some booming voice on the Damascus Road, but by some gentle voice at a place called Galilee, where the resurrected Jesus Christ met with his disciples and gave them the great commission, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But what you might not know is literally that verse reads, as you go, make disciples of all nations. And that is both more convicting and more comforting. Now, as you go, as you go about your daily lives, just speak of Christ and shine Christ. Uh, Listen carefully. Most gospel proclamation does not happen from this pulpit. Most preaching of the gospel does not happen in these four walls. Most gospel proclamation happens as, as, as all of us here just go about our daily lives. The coffee with a friend in a cafe. Going for a walk with a mate by the harbour. A dinner party where you get to shine Christ and speak of Christ. At work where you have a conversation and you just show kindness to someone and you shine Christ into their life. Sometimes you don't even use words. Sometimes it's just your, your behaviour that shines Christ into their lives and say, oh, there's something different about them. Now, we are the instruments for this incredible gospel. And I've said it before that there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and your life. And the majority of people out there, they never read Matthew, they never read Mark, they never read Luke, they never read John, but they do watch your life. And they watch what you say and how you say it. And we have this amazing privilege of taking this Gospel into a world that that needs it. So I know we're not a perfect church, I am fully aware of most of our failings, and I'm sure there's stuff I'm blind to. But what I long for this church, based on Titus chapter 1, is that we be gripped by grace, that we be growing in godliness, and we be gossiping the gospel to all those around us.